Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with us. My name's Ryan Coonerty. I'm a former mayor of Santa Cruz, California, now currently a county supervisor. I'm also a New Deal leader and the host of New Deal's podcast, An Honorable Profession. I encourage you all to check it out. Everyone in this audience today is witness to a live podcast taping as we'll be turning this into an episode in the next uh, week or two. On that note, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Future Cities Route 50's week-long annual summit, exploring local government challenges and solutions. I hope you've been enjoying it as much as I have. I've been excited to welcome you to this session entitled Digital Redlining. Digital technology and services continue to be prioritized for white, affluent communities, and cities can avoid the mistakes of the past and improve how they initiate and plan digital services so that communities of color and low-income communities aren't left behind and are able to enjoy the full economic and social benefits of being on the right side of the digital divide. In this session, we'll explore how cities can embrace solutions for building inclusive access to the digital world, something that we all knew existed and it's become more stark in the divide as we've suffered through COVID over the last 18 months. So joining me for this discussion are Trey Mendez, who's the mayor of Brownsville, Texas, Zeke Cohen, who's a council member in Baltimore, Dolan Beckel, who's the director of the Office of Civic Innovation and Digital Strategy just over the hill from me in San Jose, California, and Andrea McKellen, who's a council member in Norfolk, Virginia. I'd like to give each of you a minute to just introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about how you got into public service, and then we'll get into the the substance of the discussion. Mayor Mendez, let's start with you. Thanks, Ryan. Um, Welcome, everybody. My name is uh, Trey Mendez, and for the last two years, I've had the privilege of serving as the mayor of Brownsville, Texas, which is uh, the southernmost city in the U.S. and the largest city in the Rio Grande Valley. And uh, before this, I was actually a community college trustee for uh, nine years. And uh, when we got there, uh, we had the highest community college tuition in the state. By the time I left, we were the fastest growing uh, community college in Texas, and, and we still are. So uh, really learn the value of education, learn the value of being connected. And, and down here, we are predominantly at well over 90% Hispanic. And uh, socioeconomics of our area is uh, makes us one of the poorest communities in the U.S. as well. So this sort of uh, education, access to connectivity just makes it all more important for us down here. So happy to serve and, and happy to be part of this conversation. So thanks. Thank you. And you've done some great work down there that I think the audience is really going to love to hear about. Councilmember McClellan friend of mine, New Deal leader. Can you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Hi, Ryan. My name is Andrea McClellan, and I am zooming in from Norfolk, Virginia, which is home to the largest naval base in the world and one of the busiest ports on the East Coast. We also want to become a digital port. 
So not only moving goods, but moving data. Uh, we have coming off the shores of Virginia Beach, which is my sister city in Norfolk, cables that bring the highest internet speeds along the East Coast. And we are hoping to tap into that. And we'll talk about that a little more today. I serve as vice chair of our Southside Network Authority, which is a regional broadband ring, uh, joining five cities initially to take advantage of that. I was elected in 2016 to my role on the Norfolk City Council, and I serve half of the city, about 125,000 residents here, and excited to be here with you today. Thanks. And also doing great work around resilience, if anyone has a chance to, to check that out. Councilmember Cohen. Hey, it's an honor to be with you all. Zeke Cohen, represent District 1 on the Baltimore City Council. Before serving on the council, I was a teacher in West and in South Baltimore. For about eight years, ran an after-school program where we taught civic leadership and community organizing to high school students, and then joined the council in 2016 and was reelected in 2020 and was proud to pass the nation's first law to legislate trauma-responsive care into city governance. Very excited today to talk to you all about digital redlining, which is very much a major challenge that Baltimore and so many other places face. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great having you. And Director Beckel. Uh, thank, thanks, Ryan. Uh, actually, since we last talked, I'm now Deputy City Manager uh, Beckel. I have the remit for technology, innovation, and emergency response, along with my colleagues in the city of San Jose. The 10th so your life just got a lot harder. In America. <laughs> it, 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 it got, it's going to get a lot harder for all of us, yes, unfortunately. So um, I'm excited to be here today to talk about uh, the work San Jose has done in digital equity. Mayor Licardo, uh, the mayor of San Jose, has been actively involved at the local, uh, state, and national level. I was actually Mayor Licardo's alternate to the FCC Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee, so have some experience there at a national level as well. And I'm just really excited to join my esteemed colleagues to tell you what we've been doing uh, since 2016 in the area of uh, helping close the digital divide in the city of San Jose for our underserved communities. <coughs> Thank you. I think we're going to have a great discussion today. Anyone in the audience who has questions, we are taking audience questions. Put them in the chat and we will, uh, in the last 10 minutes or so, try to ask as many of those questions as we can. The sooner you ask your question, the better of a chance we have to, uh, to be able to have time to ask it. Um, I want to get to our discussion. And um, one of the things that you quickly realize is in the absence of any coherent federal policy around broadband, it ends up being a very local initiatives and, and with the diversity and challenges in our communities, it, it tends to be very focused and hyper-local. And so I'd like to walk through each community's experience and what you're doing and how it's going and what other communities might be able to learn from your experience thus, thus far. So uh, let's start with our mayor, Mayor Mendez, and uh, and we'll work our way through. Thanks, Ryan. Well, um, down here in, in Brownsville, like I said earlier, you know, socioeconomics play a big factor in um, in the role of the city down here. It becomes all more all the more important and critical to have uh, access and affordable access to to broadband and internet. When I got here two years ago. Brownsville was actually ranked as the least connected community in the United States. Combine that with our economic factors, um, and it makes for a troublesome scenario, right? And, and at the time, two years ago, obviously, we didn't have the same administration we have now. So 
the priorities were a little bit different. Uh, thankfully, this administration has prioritized broadband access and, and connectivity. But what the city of Brownsville did is, is this was prior to COVID, uh, we, we decided we're going to tackle this. And my, two of my key goals as mayor were to cross our names off of two lists. One of them, obviously, is least connected community in the United States. And second is one of the poorest communities in the United States. And I think um, digital access and, and um, eliminating the digital divide with uh, really kind of go hand in hand with crossing our names off uh, the list of poorest communities. So we, uh, prior to COVID, we put together a coalition of, I think it was six or seven stakeholders uh, here in the city. That's our university, our college, uh, several entities within the city, our economic development corporation, our utilities. So everybody got buy-in and, and we built this coalition of community buy-in to go forward with a broadband plan. And that broadband plan was going to tackle this, you know, eliminating the digital divide here in Brownsville. And at the time we had really no idea what it was we're looking at, no idea how we're going to fund it. Um, and uh, we were fortunate enough to get a really good consultant on board. Every entity put their share of, of the plan in. And this was again, prior to COVID. So thankfully we had that foresight to kind of start looking at this before uh, COVID hits in March. We put our, our group together, I think it was October, November of 2019. Uh, COVID hits in March and um, it became that much more critical to do this quickly. So everybody was on board, uh, certainly, and we, got, we put a good plan together. And I'm happy to say just a couple of weeks ago, we started the procurement process to actually build out our middle mile fiber network here in the city of Brownsville. And uh, it's going to cost us close to about $20 million. And thankfully, with ARP money, we're going to be able to fund that completely, uh, which is exciting for us. We're going to have seven different rings that we're going to be doing. Uh, looks like if everything goes according to plan, we should be completed with this by 2023. So, uh, I mean, we, we've got a city of around 200,000. And it's really exciting for me as mayor just to really address this and finally be able to not just talk about it, but actually start talking about the things we're doing to address it and truly eliminate the digital divide in one of the poorest communities in the United States. And, and uh, we are not going to be the least connected for too long. That is uh, that's an amazing story. And it's a good example of how, you know, these stimulus dollars, you can make a, a one-time investment that has a generational impact is just a follow-up question. Is the city the lead on this or who sort of owns this uh, deployment? Absolutely. The city is, is the lead and, and um, our community relations and governmental affairs director, who's one of my right hands, he's really uh, the city lead on this. As mayor, I mean, I've taken the major lead on this just on a policy standpoint, but this is really a huge initiative for us. It's one of my top priorities and the city is taking the lead. We're kind of bringing everybody along. And because the city is the lead, I think it legitimizes it and, and the community knows how serious we are about it. And uh, I'm just excited. I mean, our, our real priority is make it accessible, make it affordable and quality, quality broadband, uh, upload, download both. Great. I want to shift over to Deputy City Manager Beckel because you were going from Brownsville, Texas to the heart of Silicon Valley, where there is still a digital divide. And so can you talk about the efforts that, that you've made um, in the city of San Jose? Yeah, Ryan, happy to do so. And I think it's a good kind of uh, comparison about the different approaches that different cities can use. So kind of our bottom line is through public-private and public-public partnerships and fully embracing mobility and wireless communications as the way of the future. The city of San Jose has made some great progress on mitigating historical redlining, 
And we're well on our way to closing the digital divide, knowing we have a lot more work to do ahead of us to continue those digital adoptions. Um, just a little bit of framing. San Jose started to work on uh, digital inequity in 2006, uh, led by Mayor Licardo. Um, you know, we're uh, about six times the scale that, that Mayor Mendez is talking about. We have 1.2 million residents. We're the 10th largest city in America. We're home to some of the wealthiest zip codes in the country, yet over 10% of our population is either unconnected at home or underconnected or having a broadband. So we really are the tale of two cities. About 40% of our residents were born outside the United States. So when you think of the barriers to digital adoptions, they include extremely low levels of household income, language barriers, cultural barriers, educational barriers, and even safety concerns over data privacy, cyberbullying, cybersecurity. And I think it, it's telling somewhat similar to Mayor Mendez. In 2016, our average wireless download speed was five megabits per second and our upload was one. So you, you're in the capital of Silicon Valley, but you couldn't even walk downtown or in a wealthy neighborhood and download a, uh, a, a, a high definition video on your phone. So we, uh, we're, we weren't quite as bad. We rank, ranked in the bottom quartile of our peers for both wire and wireless. And that clearly was not the, uh, the, the marketing or brand image that, that the capital of Silicon Valley should be representing, right? So. In 2016, with digital inclusion being one of the five pillars of our smart city vision, we developed a broadband and digital inclusion strategy that really said we need to improve connectivity for everybody in San Jose, as well as closing the, the digital divide. And some of the key elements of our strategy were to leverage the value of our city-owned assets. And not every city is in this position, but we fully own 70,000 streetlights. And those streetlights provide power, they provide height, and they provide density necessary for small cell deployments to get more economical ways of deploying broadband out into the community as a whole in those underserved cities. So um, secondly, we fully embraced wireless and, mo and, and uh, mobility as the future of communications because students need to do their homework at home, but they need to take their homework to school. You know, they, they want to be able to be mobile. The whole society needs to be mobile. And we're seeing that trend in the explosion of millions of disconnected devices. And then thirdly, we entered into public-private partnerships with three major telcos to leverage that value of the streetlight. We wanted to incent the telcos to invest in San Jose rather than considering $2 billion, you know, municipal build-outs in our city at the time in 2016. So fast forward, we entered into uh, three public-private partnerships with AT&T, Verizon, and Mobility on behalf of Sprint to deploy 4,000 small cells throughout the city of San Jose, which required about 1,000 miles of fiber throughout the city, including fiber, fiber to the neighborhood. We were also able to incent the telcos to invest in process improvements so we could actually put together a permitting team that allowed us to scale from about 17 permits a year to about 100 permits a week uh, to actually uh, move at the speed of business. That resulted in about half a billion dollars of investment in the city. And I think most importantly, the revenue from leasing those 4,000 small cells goes into a digital inclusion fund. And that's where we're able to make grants to our local communities to help provide super hyper local, like you know, neighborhood local and culturally relevant language in language 
support to help those underserved communities achieve a digital adoption. So to the point of redlining, by the time we went into COVID lockdown, we had made our first round of grants to the community. We had lots of fiber in the ground. We had a fully automated permitting and inspection process to the point our partners were able to put up small cells in as little as 24 hours. And by that point in time, for, this, for San Jose as a whole, we had increased our average wireless download speed about 500%. So at least you're able to download a, a high-definition video from school to do your homework you know, on your phone. And as we all know, the pandemic made the situation worse. It really exacerbated the existing digital divide. So what we did was we turned to our, our, our public-private partnerships and said, look, we have a fully automated permitting system. We want you to continue deploying small cells, but we need you to shift to our underserved communities with distance learning for kids all being remote, with telehealth for seniors who couldn't make it into the hospital. We really uh, needed to shift the infrastructure to focus on our underserved communities. And uh, fortunately, both Verizon and AT&T agreed. So we shifted our small cell deployments out to those communities. And in partnership with AT&T, we were able to deploy almost 20,000 hotspots that were connected to those 4G or 5G small cells. So in an underserved household that has multiple generation, multiple families, uh, up to 15 people were able to do 25 megabits symmetric so that grandma and grandpa were able to do their telehealth, the students were able to do their remote learning uh, in that multi-generational, multi-family household. We also accelerated public-private, public-public partnership with the Eastside Union High School District where we're installing outdoor Wi-Fi on light poles so that people at home can tap into that and, and do their work. So we provided Chromebooks to tens of thousands. The schools provided Chromebooks to their students and then we actually, by the end of next year, will be addressing 300,000 people in those underserved communities with access to outdoor Wi-Fi. So, you know, looking forward, we know we have a lot more work to do. We're, we're thankful that the FCC has the Emergency Broadband Benefit and Emergency Connectivity Fund, so we can continue to kind of leverage and build the infrastructure we have out there. Brian, that's kind of closing a pretty thorough summary of how we are able to develop our broadband and digital inclusion strategy get it rolling before the pandemic. And then that became actually a major driver to get our partners to agree to deploy the infrastructure out to our underserved communities. So those students and seniors could, could actually continue a fairly good quality of life at home and able to access the internet for school and for telehealth. Thank you. I, mean, I think that's a, that's a really interesting approach in that public-private model that I'm sure we're gonna wanna come back to. Let's uh, let's jump three thousand miles uh, across the country to Norfolk and uh, hear Councilmember McClellan. Uh, how are things going in your community? So I, I appreciate what Mayor Mendez is doing. We are taking a similar middle mile approach. Oftentimes, when we talk about connectivity as it relates to the digital divide, or in general uh, in the Commonwealth of Virginia and elsewhere, it's it's trying to make sure that. Everybody has connectivity. Well, in Norfolk, we have connectivity, but 25% of our residents don't have access to high-speed internet because it's not affordable. So the affordability piece is so critical, and I think we're finally starting to address that. 
at a national level and at a state level, but it's got to be, uh, it's, it, I think it needs to be more of a priority because if you look in Virginia, for example, uh, the number of people who don't have access, it's an affordability issue more than it is an actual connectivity issue as well. So what we have recognized is in, in many instances in our region, we have one provider. So there's no competition. So by building out this middle mile uh, within this five city area initially, and it, as we phase it, it will expand to 17 municipalities. By building that out, we are going to not only lower our costs from the municipality standpoint and from you know, educational partners, et cetera, we are able to lease out our additional capacity to try and incentivize and lower the barrier to entry for more internet service providers. Additionally, as mentioned, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you can't have 5G in, unless you have backhaul. You have to have wires in the ground. You have to have that fiber. And so by providing that fiber in the ground, we're also recognizing from a future standpoint, we're, we're going to incentivize more 5G providers. And then ultimately we wanna be a connected city and a connected region. And for all the IoT devices and all the autonomous vehicles that we see in our future, you can't have those unless you have that backhaul. But that said, as it relates to digital redlining, Norfolk, like so many urban cities, has a bad history of redlining. And we've gotta get around that. And we need to make sure that we have affordable reliable internet, and we also have devices, and we have digital literacy. And I think that there needs to be all those things, all those components need to be addressed as we tackle connectivity. It can't just be about having wire in the ground, or fiber in the ground, rather. It's got to be, um, you got to have a device that you can use it on, and you have to have the aptitude and the digital literacy as well. And we haven't quite talked about that yet, but that's something that I'm working on in Norfolk regionally and at the state level, and I, I hope that the federal government will also be I'm providing grants for that as well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's an important point. You gotta, you gotta focus on the, on the the equity of it all. Councilmember Cohen. Yeah. So I mentioned that I started my career as a teacher in public schools in Baltimore, and you know, I taught in two communities that had historically been redlined: Sandtown, Winchester, which had really been the black art jazz mecca of West Baltimore, and then saw a huge amount of depopulation and just flight, middle-class flight, and really went through some pretty rapid declines. So when I taught there, uh, there were children still being poisoned by lead paint. The schools I taught in lacked heat, air conditioning, or drinkable running water. And the level of trauma was just very, very high in the communities that I taught in. And there was also the issue of connectivity and lack of internet access. We found out from a survey from the ABLE Foundation that in 2018, 40% of Baltimore families lacked home wireline internet access. Um, so council member, we, you know, as much as a struggle for Norfolk, we feel it even more so in our city, in Baltimore. And, you know, like, like you, I'm sure it, it was a huge, it's been historically a huge challenge, but during this pandemic, that becomes a crisis because that 40% of our city is children who now can't learn because the only game in town, as far as an education is online, that was seniors who are struggling to get their telemedicine visits or just be able to connect, have any kind of social inclusion in this time of physical distancing and isolation. 
you know, that was families who need to be online for work, for just day-to-day life. So it really became this major crisis during the pandemic. And I started hearing from teachers, from families, from young people, especially saying, look, uh, to, to, to the previous speaker's points, we don't have a device. We don't have any way of connecting. Um, the libraries are closed, so that's not going to work. Um, and so we as a city really scrambled. And what was great was there was a lot of student leadership where young people really pushed us. And I was proud to partner with a group called Somos here in Baltimore, which is a student-led activist group to introduce and very quickly pass a bill to move $3 million from our children and youth fund to purchase Chromebooks and to expand internet access for a lot of families that frankly didn't have it. Like previous speakers as well, Baltimore has only one contract uh, major provider, and that is Comcast. And to be just quite frank, it has at times been a real challenge. We have a lot of folks who struggle, even if they have the lowest internet essentials program, um, really struggle with speeds. So even getting on Zoom, staying on Google Classrooms has been a challenge for a lot of our young people throughout the pandemic. So we, in addition to the work locally, started to really get involved federally, because as you sort of introduced, Ryan, this is not just a Baltimore problem. This is not just a problem specific to any of our communities. This is an American problem, and it impacts towns and cities and reservations and rural, urban I mean, it is truly when we think about infrastructure and, of course, the great emphasis that the Biden administration has placed, this is 21st century infrastructure. And just like the rural electrification of the 30s and 40s, I think we need that same sense of urgency right now. We need to see broadband as a public utility and not just a private luxury that well-to-do people are able to get while others are excluded from. So we started working with the FCC and have been in really good conversations with Congresswoman Clark from New York about a bill that she's introducing around reducing, cutting out, stopping digital redlining. Because for as much as this has impacted us in Baltimore, I know it's impacted so many of our other jurisdictions as well. And every child, every grown up, and every senior deserves to be able to access the internet at a reasonable rate without being kicked off constantly. Yeah, thank you, Councilmember Cohen. I couldn't agree more. I mean, this needed to be a public utility 20 years ago, and now we're scrambling, And but hopefully we can start to move in that direction. We actually have an audience question for you, which is uh, people are interested in advice you have on how do you... They like the approach you're taking where it's grassroots. And so how do you, what's the advice you have for people who want to partner with grassroots, particularly maybe students and young people on this policy issue? Yeah. So listen, Baltimore is blessed to have just amazing grassroots organizations, youth, students. I mean, you know, it it sort of, we're a Mecca. We're a, we're amazing. There's so much energy um, particularly coming from our young people. So 
as a former teacher, as someone who spent most of my career working with young folks, uh, to me, it's sort of in, endemic. It's, it's in my blood on kind of what I do. But I would say for others that I think a few things. One is I think really being intentional about partnering with schools, partnering with libraries, partnering with rec centers. I mean, the spaces that young folks occupy, you know, we used to call it the homework gap, but now we call it the digital divide, digital redlining. So making sure that we are in those spaces and serving those needs. I would also say there are a number of really great groups out there. Of course, Route 50 and all the work that you all are doing, you know, Free State. Um, th th there's just a great coalition of digital advocates that are out there and would be able to happy to connect to anyone. I'll put my email in the chat to some of the national players. But I think fundamentally it's about relationships. And it's about making sure that we're listening and lifting up the voices of young people. When they call on us to make sure they're connected, we better be prepared to respond. Because I will never forget hearing from Kimberly and Yashira and some of the folks from Somos saying to me, Zeke, we literally can't get an education right now because I'm in a house with four siblings. I can't keep the Comcast from kicking me off of Internet Essentials. We are just stuck. And it's not fair because in this country, we are supposed to have the right to a free public education. That is one of the cornerstones of what the American democracy experience of American democracy is supposed to promise. And yet we are being denied that right right now. And so for me, it was no brainer that we had to move some money very quickly to make sure none of our young people were left behind in the pandemic. And now I think it's about how do we also move that forward? And I just want to pick up on a point that Councilmember McClellan made around digital literacy, um, because we've seen in Baltimore also, you know, we have vast swaths of our community that don't know Zoom and don't have access to, you know, having been brought up with email, we think about some of the older adults, you know, even, even like my parents were constantly like, you know, Zeke, how do I use this iPhone? Like, what's going on with it? Um, so one of the things that we've been working on that's again been student led is to set up some kind of digital navigators program where we are going to pay high school students who have been reared in this technology to teach older adults or undocumented parents uh, or any of us who just aren't as fluent and as literate in some of the technology, teach those skills, teach folks to use Excel and Word and Zoom and Gmail and whatever. So I, I think council member is absolutely astute and right on that this is, this is an access problem, but it's also unless we are explicit in teaching the skills of how to utilize 21st century technology, we're still going to see a lot of people left behind. And that's where students have really pushed us. I like it. 
I needed I needed one of your students uh, getting on this Zoom because for some reason my microphone wasn't working. Uh, so uh, exactly what exactly right, maybe create a helpline for all of us. We have another question, and I appreciate the outreach. Because we have people who are saying they work in state government and the federal government, and what can they do to support municipalities as they combat digital redlining? And I'll start with Mayor Mendez. Um, what what do you need from our state and federal partners? Well, I think the, the important thing is support more than anything. Uh, talk to your legislators, talk to your state government officials about the importance of, of digital inclusion. Uh, certainly the funding was critical, uh, even in Texas, for example. And, and, you know, Texas is known as a very business friendly state. But here in this last legislative session, they're still behind, I, I, I would say. And um, they barely formed a broadband committee to kind of start looking at the issue. It's like, guys, you're, you're years behind already. You're going to barely start looking at it at the speed of, of government, the legislature. I mean, it meets every two years. So in two years, they're going to have come back and, and kind of talk about their findings and then maybe figure out how to address it, maybe fund it uh, two years later and, and start to tackle it two years after that. So it just moves too slow. And, and that's why Brownsville really took the bull by the horns and just said, you know what, we're going to do this. We're going to move forward on it. We'll figure out how we're going to pay for it. Thankfully, ARP came in and were able to do it. But yeah, I mean, as, as state and, uh, governments, just support support what this is, support the value of it. It has so much impact, not only like we discussed earlier in education, telehealth, but it's an economic driver. As we've seen in Silicon Valley, I mean, uh, we've seen the benefits there. And certainly, I mean, you guys are doing incredible things there, Dolan. I had the, the chance to meet one of your, uh, one of your innovation officers, uh, uh, Jordan Sun, who's actually from uh, Harlingen, which is 30 miles away from here. So uh, I had the opportunity to meet him doing some great things out there. Y'all are really the model in the way you approach this. And, and for us, uh, we realize that it does bring value uh, economically. And, and our plan looks like it may start paying for itself after about five years of becoming income producing. Unlike some of the other communities, we're not Silicon Valley, unfortunately. So we did not have the support of the telecommunication companies. Uh, in fact, the, the reason we were where we were in one of least connected is because uh, it just didn't make a good business model for them to to want to do that down here. And that's the real situation for a lot of communities across the U.S. And I think also we are hearing across across the country, some of this uh, legislation, some of the funding uh, specifically addresses rural communities. But we're, we're talking about a major problem with urban communities as well, especially with the density. And I think urban communities are, are kind of lost in this conversation and uh, they need to be at the forefront of this as well. So I'd say for, for federal officials, state officials, and anybody else out there in government, also talk about the importance of having this in, in urban environments, not just rural, uh, because we all need it. We've all seen the value of it uh, through this pandemic and, and just keep talking about the importance, the value, and the need for funding and equity. So actually, that's what, I had a follow-up question, which was, as you use your ARP money to build it out, obviously, that's one-time money. And so uh, so for sustainability purposes and also for um, to support some of the programs around inclusion, uh, how do you plan to fund that in, in the out years? Well, um, you know, starting off, it's something that, that we have funded, like I said, but uh, we're just going to have to set that money aside. And, and because it's something that we see as being uh, income generating going forward, it kind of makes it easier. Our plan is maybe five years, maybe a little bit sooner. Uh, originally, this plan said uh, it was going to be done by 2025. I crossed through the 2025 and I said, no, this has got to be done in 2023. It's too important of an issue for us. We got to get it done sooner. So uh, really, the, the, the funding part, 
Uh, Ryan, I think, um, you know, we're going to set some money aside for that at the beginning, but also I see that funding throughout this whole thing becomes more important from a federal level. Like uh, Dolan mentioned, also there's some other dollars available out there to help us with this. So we're going to be looking at that and, and just uh, approaching it kind of meticulously and, and uh, deliberately, but also very aggressively. Great. And Dolan Beckel, can you talk to us about what we need from our federal and state partners to make these systems sustainable and inclusive? Happy to do so. I mean, I think you hit one of the things right there, which is sustainability, right? Infrastructure building takes time. And so the things we're talking about are going to take a while. And we've got our residents in urban and rural communities that need help now. And so so let this needs to be a multi-year uh, you know, plan that looks at sustainability even beyond. Um, because in, in San Jose, we partnered with Stanford University. We did uh, several thousand text messages to the underserved because most, most underserved communities still have um, text messaging. And the affordability cost was less than $10 a month. So even some of these, even some of these, you know, middle mile projects and municipal projects struggled to get affordability to that point. So I think we have to continue to look at sustainability, we have to kind of get over the subsidy hurdle that's out there right now and accept the fact that may need to be there for quite a long time. And then to to some other comments from my panelists, this we need to look at this as a holistic solution, not silos. And I see one, one bill and one program focused on infrastructure. I see one program and one bill focused on device. I see not as much focus on the digital literacy. And you need to address all of those holistically and so I, I really encourage our state and federal to have coordination between state agencies and between state and federal agencies. So we're coming up with a holistic approach to this that recognizes there's multiple solutions, not just one. And what works for a, for, for a rural community may not work for an urban community. And, uh, and I think at the end of the day, it needs to be affordable and needs to be holistic. And I'm not seeing that in a lot of our infrastructure legislation at the state or the federal level right now. I appreciate that. Hey, Ryan, can I jump in real quickly? One of the Absolutely. things, I, I love this conversation. The other thing I think our state and federal partners need to think about is being technology agnostic, right? We've, we've all just said, oh, it's fiber. And, 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 and while fiber is really critical to 5G, what we're testing in Virginia and in our rural communities and our mountainous areas is uh, satellite broadband, is Starlink. And um, that's going to be the answer. You know, it doesn't take millions of dollars. It doesn't take right away clearance. It doesn't take all the time required to get fiber in the ground. Unfortunately, the way Virginia funds broadband is we're not funding Starlink. We're not funding broadband satellite, regardless of the name attached. Um, so, I, and there will be new technologies that come about. And so, I think one of the challenges is you're putting these massive dollars in, and you know, as a as a, a government, we're very risk averse, um, and we want to make sure about these things. Um, so, and the technology is evolving. So, there's a real challenge there for sure. Um, and and one of the, you know, one of the the downsides of providing municipally provided broadband is that. Uh, the municipal level, we may not be up on the latest technology. So there's some pros and cons there. But anyway, I just want to put that one out. I think that's part of the challenge moving forward. But I'm I'm, I'm very concerned that we are just so focused on one technology. And I think we need to be open to the fact that there this is going to be um, evolutionary. 
And I think, Andrea, you bring up a really good point about sort of there's the technological uh, investment and adaptation. Um, and we need carrots and sticks to bring private sector to the table. Dolan talked about some of those carrots and sticks around permitting and uh, those sorts of things. What else, what else can we do either as a municipal government or with federal and state support to get more responsive and more inclusive investment by, by these, by, by private companies. If we, if we're not going to do it as a municipal government, uh, Zeke, you, you were, you were complaining about Comcast. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think that the FCC as a regulatory body really has a role to play. Um, you know, I think uh, just to be, Candid uh, over the past few years under the previous chairman's leadership, uh, it's been a little bit of a wild, wild west in terms of uh, large ISPs doing whatever they want and sort of consolidating. And, um, you know, to me, it has felt in some cases anti competitive. And, you know, I, I just think that there is a profound need for the FCC, for Congress, for the federal government, for President Biden to really play a leadership role in making America top in the world at digital connectivity. I mean, again, we see it in parts of California. We see it in, you know, little pieces around our country in Silicon Valley. But you know, in a place like Baltimore, we shouldn't have 40% of our city not be able to connect online. There is something profoundly wrong with that. We know that without understanding and being able to leverage and access internet, the future of work, the jobs of the 21st century are going to be extremely prohibitive. We're not in an economy where folks can wake up, graduate from high school, and then go work at Bethlehem Steel and earn a family-sustaining wage. And while we hope that, you know, to see a resurgence of manufacturing, we know that understanding and being able to master and access internet is just critical. It's critical whether you live in Baltimore or San Jose. And so I think that, to me, there's a real imperative for the FCC to set some real standards. You know, I'll just give you a, one example we saw come up in Baltimore was midway through the pandemic, there was questions around Comcast introducing data caps, which at first I'd never even heard of, but then found out basically meant that if you utilized a certain amount of data, uh, that you would then be charged more without you having signed a contract for that, it just this arbitrary cap of how much data you could use. And a few of my colleagues and I went to our attorney general and asked him to investigate this as a source of predatory price gouging during the state of emergency. Fortunately, Comcast backed off of that, at least for now. But to me, that's the kind of arbitrary move that harms our most vulnerable people. So I just feel like the FCC, Congress, the federal government needs to play a leadership role, needs to set some standards. And I think that municipalities are 
always at an asymmetric disadvantage when negotiating with large ISPs. But the more that we can communicate in conversations like this one and just hear from each other and work together and support each other, I think the better off we're all going to be. I think there is a role for collective bargaining among municipalities, you know, to just make sure that our folks get the best connection they possibly can. Yeah, I think that's an important point, which is for the, for the folks in the federal and state levels, giving us leverage at the bargaining table helps municipalities. And then looking at the partnerships that we've heard, uh, as Mayor Mendez says, bringing other, you know, whether it's universities or other providers to the table that may have additional leverage. Some levels, this is a negotiation as well as, as well as a utility it needs to be provided. Councilmember McKellen just sent me a note and she's exactly right that in a world of extreme heat and fires and floods, not being connected to communication systems is not just a matter of economic empowerment, but is now a matter of life and death, right? And these systems are the first things that often go down when when you lose power and you lose other, other resources in emergencies. So it's really important. That's it for today. I'm looking forward to seeing more about what these extraordinary public servants are doing uh, in their cities and um, hopefully copying many of their models or using uh, it. I want to thank Mayor Mendez, Councilmember McClellan, Councilmember Cohen, and Deputy City Manager Beckel for uh, joining me at this discussion. Thank Route 50 for uh, hosting us all today. And uh, a reminder that these uh, are recorded. And if you had to tune out for part of it, uh, you will be able to log on and listen to this or any of the other panel sessions that, that you may have missed. Uh, and this will also be an episode of an Honorable Profession podcast, uh, which profiles some of the best and brightest emerging leaders in, in the country today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, good luck for the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.